Okay, well, thank you very much, Megan, for uh, leading us in prayer and hope. Fantastic job reading Scripture. Um, I think you can tell by uh, the weeks that have gone by that we have some pretty uh, impressive young youngsters in this church with the way they can read, man. Like, Hope, are you 18 or are you 8? How old is Hope? Nobody knows. It's a mystery. Great job, Hope. Thank you very much. Um, Okay, we are once again continuing through uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible as the kind of uh, framework for our uh, sermon series. And we've come to this story uh, in John chapter 6 of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, that title is actually a little bit misleading uh, because uh, Jesus fed 5,000 men. Uh, but there were probably women and children there. Some scholars say that this crowd was uh, much, 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 much bigger than just 5,000 people. There are probably close to 15,000 people, maybe even 20,000 people here. So the picture you're supposed to get is of a rock concert or, you know, you remember in the olden days, pre-COVID, we, we could go to outdoor festivals, you know, at parks and, and, and fairgrounds and stuff like that. You're supposed to picture the scene as being something like that. And like last week's story where we saw Jesus uh, calming the storm, this story demonstrates to us very clearly that Jesus has divine power, that he has creative power, that this Jesus is not just a man. He is much, much more than a man. He, in fact, is God, the only God, the only God in existence who created the universe, he, has that, he is that God who has come in the flesh, in the likeness of a human being, like you and us, to show us uh, who God is, to save us from our sin, to free us to live uh, a flourishing life for his glory. That's what this story shows us. But that's not all this story shows us. It shows us a lot, actually, about Jesus' power. And so what we're going to do together is we're going to look at these five things that we, uh, we see about Jesus' power as described in this story. And just, just so you know, uh, I will have my phone on for Q&A. If anybody during the course of the sermon comes up with a question, you'd like some clarification on something, you can text me. You can find that number to text me on, um, on our website. I don't want to give it to you now because I don't want to uh, get all these unsolicited phone calls this coming week. So you can find that number on the website, uh, my phone number. You can text me your question, and I'll get to it uh, after the message. But there's five things about Jesus' power that we're going to look at together, okay? Here we go. From this passage, we learn that Jesus' power is real. Jesus' power is real. What's unique about this miracle is that this is the only miracle of Jesus that every single one of the Gospels actually uh, uh, records. The question is why? Now, there may be a, a number of different reasons why all four Gospels record this miracle, but one certainly is this. This event really happened. Now, that's not to say the other miracle stories that aren't found in every single Gospel didn't really happen, but scholars point to this miracle story as an example of what's known as the external witness to Scripture. And let me explain what that means to you. There were thousands of witnesses to this miracle. If the scholars are right, there are perhaps 
tens of thousands of witnesses to this miracle. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, Mark records this story just like John does. Mark wrote his gospel somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 to 65 AD, which means it was very, very close to the actual events of Jesus uh, uh, feeding this, this multitude in this miraculous way. And what that means, is, and, and also that means, therefore, that, that the letter of Mark was circulating very early in uh, the life of the church. Luke, when he records this uh, story, he actually says at the beginning of his letter that he um, investigated, made an investigation of all the things that happened to Jesus, that he actually, uh, uh, he, I just got a text, hope is eight. Now we all know. Okay. <laughs> Not 18. Eight. Anyhow, Jesus, uh, don't text me during the sermon. Jesus, uh, I'm, a, I'm distractible, like squirrel. You know what I mean? Uh, Jesus, um, where was I? Oh, yeah. So Luke investigates the events of Jesus' life, and he actually goes to eyewitnesses, meaning that he probably went to Bethsaida, where this uh, miracle happened, and he interviewed people. And he asked them, were you there when this, this uh, miracle happened? And they would say yes, and he wrote down the details of it. See, if this is just a legend, it's pretty hard to believe that it's possible that a letter about these events are circulating at the time when eyewitnesses to the event still live. Like, if a letter is circulating around that at Bethsaida, Jesus fed a huge multitude with just these five loaves of bread and these two fish, right? Uh, the, there, people could go to Bethsaida and they could say, hey, I heard this incredible thing happen here. And the people say, well, wait a minute, I've been living here all my life. I, I, I've been around, nothing happens here without me knowing it. And I can tell you that never happened. There's nobody who refutes this miracle story. In fact, the, the Pharisees, who are the enemies of Jesus, okay, they don't like Jesus, they want Jesus stopped. In fact, they plot to have Jesus killed, ultimately. None of them actually refute the events of Jesus' life. They don't say, well, he's a fraud. They say instead that he's a threat. So Jesus' power, it's demonstrated in this story, is actually real, okay, Secondly, we learn from this story that, that Jesus' power meets us in our weakness. One of the things that is unique about John's telling of this story is, is that he zeroes in on these individuals. He zeroes in on Jesus' interaction with Philip and with Andrew and with this little boy. And in each uh, of these cases, uh, what we see is that those individuals uh, have their weakness exposed in the face of a huge problem. Uh, I don't know about, about you guys, but I can get uh, what's called hangry sometimes, you know, when you're really hungry and maybe, I don't know, your blood sugar's dropping or something. I don't know the physics behind it. All I know is that I kind of get grumpy, okay? Well, imagine uh, 15,000 hangry people. It says here that they were, these crowds were coming to Jesus. They needed food and they needed it now. And Jesus uh, has Philip with him, and he says to Philip, you know, hey, we got, this, uh, we got this hungry crowd here, hey? Where, he asks, where shall we buy bread for the people to eat? Now, notice, Jesus doesn't say, Philip, man, we've got this huge crowd here. How on earth 
are, are they going to get fed? How in, how in the world are we going to, to feed a group this size? No, he just assumes that they are going to take on the responsibility of feeding this hungry crowd. And so he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people uh, to eat? And probably he asks Philip because Philip is from Bethsaida. So he knows where, you know, where the metro is or the Fortinos or uh, the no frills or whatever in town. He knows where to go. And of course, Philip, he looks at the crowd in front of him and then he kind of looks at Jesus after hearing this question. He looks at the crowd and he looks at Jesus and he kind of goes, what did you just ask? You know, Philip crunches the numbers, right? And he says in verse 7, he says, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite, let alone actually be filled. You never have an hors d'oeuvre without having a meal afterwards. It's the worst thing for you when you're hungry and you get a little bit of food and it starts getting your digestive system going and the next thing you know, there's nothing for you to satisfy your hunger. It makes you hungrier to begin with. And Philip says, look, this is impossible. And then, of course, Andrew walks up and he's got this youngster with him. We don't know how old the boy was. And he's got the boy's lunch. And he says, well, I found this boy. He's got five loaves of barley and and two fish. Now, these are not like the kind of loaves of bread that we buy in a grocery store. They probably look more like a biscuit. Okay, so five little biscuits. And the fish are not like the fish that we buy. You know, you buy a, a... uh, salmon steaks or, uh, or cod fillets or something like that. These are, are the, the Greek there says small fish, meaning something like a sardine. They were really just a garnish. They weren't there for sustenance. They were there for taste. What this boy has brought is a snack. Okay? And Andrew says, well, that, that's, that's all we've got. How far, he asked, will this go among so many? Here's the point. Jesus meets us with his power in our weakness. In verse 6, it says this. This is the kind of interpretive key to the whole passage. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. In other words, this is deliberate. Just like last time, this time it's a setup. Jesus sets these individuals up to show how needy they are, how inadequate they are. It's the, it's the inadequacy of the crowd. It's the inadequacy of the human condition. Here's the principle, friends. If you want to experience Jesus' power in your life, the first thing that has to happen is you have to admit your own powerlessness. Many people want Jesus to work powerfully and move powerfully in their lives, but they're not willing to admit that they actually desperately need him, that they are completely inadequate. Here these disciples were seeing 15,000 people around them. And all they got is a snack to feed these people with. Their resources were not enough. Friends, you got to realize your resources are not enough. You cannot handle your problems alone. You can't. Look, most of the time we are going through life pretending that we can. We got this. We can handle our job. We can handle our relationships, whether it be 
friendships or romantic relationships or spouses or something. We can handle the pressures of our education. We can handle uh, the issues that our kids are dealing with. All the while flipping through social media that's telling you, you got this. You're going to rock it. You're killing it. And meanwhile, inside you're falling apart. You need outside power. You need Jesus' outside power. And, and the only way that's going to happen is if you are finally driven to despair of your own resources. When you finally say, look, this, these problems, my life, as, as AA would tell you, my life is unmanageable and I am powerless over my addiction. Uh, there's a place in Second Chronicles, chapter 20, where... Um, What happens there? Oh, oh yeah, now I know. King Jehoshaphat of Judah, the nation of Judah, he is going to be attacked by three other nations. And so he is completely outnumbered. His, his army is outnumbered uh, probably five or even possibly ten to one. And he's about to be overrun, and he knows that there is absolutely no way that he is going to be able to fight back against this foreign enemy. And they're going to to sweep through Israel, and they're going to destroy them, and they're probably going to enslave many of them. And he's desperate, and he falls down before God, and he says to God, Lord, we know we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's it, friends. We know that we are powerless against this great horde. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You've got to come to the place where you say, I cannot save myself. That all my best efforts fall flat or they fall short. Half the time when I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm just making things worse. You see, the wonderful thing about the gospel, and you'll hear us say this around Grace Valley a lot, to come to Jesus All you need is need. That's all you need. You don't bring anything to him. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. All you need is need. Do you have that? Do you have that? You will not experience Jesus' power in your life unless you do that. But that's not all. That's not all. Because once you admit your need, you have to take the next step. And that's point three. Jesus' power works through us when we give him total authority. Jesus' power works through us when we give him total authority. Here's this boy, right? And he's among the crowd, and somehow Andrew sees him with his little bag lunch or something and says, hey, you, come here. I want, I, I want you to come with me. And he, he's got this little snack that he's prepared for his trip. And Andrew brings him to Jesus, and Andrew says, hey, there's this boy here, and he's got this little snack. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes his lunch. Verse 11, then Jesus then took the loaves. He took his lunch. Now, I'm sure Jesus is not a bully. You know, he's not like Mo from Calvin and Hobbes. Give me your lunch, kid. I'm sure that this boy offered his lunch to Jesus, and Jesus indeed did take it. But notice, the boy gave everything to him. It's not like the boy said, okay, here, take four loaves, and I'll give you even two and a half of the fish, but I want a little snack for myself still, because, I mean, hey, I did bring it after all. I mean, it is my lunch. 
uh, I think it's fair for me to keep one little biscuit, one little loaf, and, and a little bit of, of fish just for the taste to enjoy. No, no, no. He gave absolutely everything to him. And here's the kicker, okay? The moment the boy gave it all, he felt like he had nothing. Because he did have nothing. Or so he thought. He goes from having something to giving it all to Jesus and now having absolutely nothing. And that is how it feels at first. If you give up control of your life, if you say to Jesus, look, you control me, you rule me, you govern me, you guide me, it's all yours. Everything I have, my material wealth, my money, my talents, my gifts, my relationships, my people that I love, everything, if I give it all to you, you give that, that, that control up. It's scary. Maybe some of you have done these, uh, these trust falls. You ever had to do a trust fall? I don't know, maybe you were like on a corporate retreat or something like that, and they're trying to teach you how to, how to trust your colleagues or something like that. Maybe you got to do it at school. You know what a trust fall is. You're supposed to stand, I think, with your feet together and someone stands behind you promising to catch you and you begin to fall backwards, right? And at at some point, at the point of no return, what do you want to do? You want to stick your leg back, right? To protect you from actually falling because that point, if you don't do it at that moment, now you're in free fall. There is no safety net. We are hardwired to want control over our lives. Even despite the fact that we very often, well, not very often, we always make a muck of it, ultimately. And to give up control for us is a terrifying prospect because it almost feels like a death because you, you feel like you have nothing anymore. But when you do, here's the thing, when you do, you experience Christ's power through it. Look, you experience Christ's power through you, in fact. Look, look at how Jesus does this miracle. Look at how he does it. He, he, could, have, he could have been like Albus Dumbledore, you know? In, in Harry Potter, you know, the kids come into the great hall for dinner and he just kind of waves his wand and a big feast appears. Jesus could have walked through the crowds and he could have gone, bling! And all these mountains of food could have just appeared in front of all these different groups of people, but Jesus doesn't do it that way. They would have oohed and awed over. They would, wow, this guy's amazing. Wow, look at the food. And he doesn't do that. No, he takes what this boy has, which is on its own, not enough. He takes this boy's resources. But when those resources are placed in Jesus' hands, they become more than enough for his needs, for all of their needs. See, Jesus, the power of Jesus is not just meant to work in us. What I mean by that is, yes, the Holy Spirit, when, he, when you come to faith in Jesus, for those of you who don't, don't know about this, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, when you do give your life to Him, that means that the Holy Spirit comes in you. The second person of the Trinity, He takes up spiritual residence in you. It's, it's mysterious, I admit, because there's, you can't find a location for, you know, is the Holy Spirit sitting here? Is He sitting here kind of by my heart? Is He more in my stomach? It's not like that. He's spiritually present within you, and He works in you. He shapes you. 
He shapes your desires. He, he shapes your goals. He, he impresses upon you the love of God and, and shapes your psychology and even your image of who you think you are. He does all these things and it's glorious and it's wonderful. But the message here is, is that Jesus also works through you. If you really want to know Jesus' power in your life, you have to pour yourself out for others. You have to sacrifice yourself for others. Let me press you on this a little bit. I was listening to a podcast this week where the, author, the, the, the podcast uh, author or whatever you call him, speaker, was talking about boundaries, uh, the importance of boundaries, how, how we, we need to have boundaries uh, and keep boundaries uh, in our relationships because, uh, you know, sometimes you can be you can become overwhelmed by your responsibilities or obligations toward others and it can be bad for your mental health and for your emotional health, spiritual health, and that is all absolutely true. But one of the things this podcaster pointed out, and I think it's, it's worth thinking about, is that sometimes we, if we're not careful, we can use the language of boundaries to actually put up barriers to blessing other people. And rather than say that that's what you're doing, I will, I will just examine my own heart and I will be honest. You know, I want to help others as long as it doesn't cramp my style too much. I want to bless others as long as it doesn't have too much of, a, of, a, of an effect on my own lifestyle. As long as it's too much not, not too much of an inconvenience for me, as long as it doesn't cost me too much money or too much time or too much mental effort. You know, Jesus could have said when this crowd came to him, this, he could have said, listen, this is their problem. These dingalings didn't bring lunch. They should have brought something to eat. It's their own fault. You know, when Matthew describes this story, he says that Jesus went away to a desolate place, to the wilderness, for some rest, for some peace and quiet, and the crowds chased after him. And it says there, Matthew says, that Jesus looked at the crowds coming to him and he had compassion on them and so he healed their sick. And then it says that, that when it was time for them to eat something, the disciples came to him and said, hey, send them away into the towns to go find something to eat. And Jesus' response was, you give them something to eat. It is your responsibility for their, to care for those in need. Don't slough it off on, onto someone else and make it someone else's responsibility. You do it. But you see, when you do it, you become blessed in ways that you never imagined. You know, when, when our family fostered, uh, one of the things about fostering is, is it totally cramps your style, especially when you now have kids that are sort of like our children are pretty self-sufficient now. They don't need their parents a lot in terms of doing things for them, that kind of stuff. And then when, you're, when you start fostering and now you've got like a baby or a toddler in your house and they need all kinds of attention and they need their diapers changed and you, you know, after supper you've got to play with them to bedtime. You can't just go sit down and watch the news and read the book. It cramps your style. Totally it does. And you wake up in the middle of the night because they're screaming and you're sitting in their bedroom with them and you're holding them and rocking them and you're thinking to yourself, what? Sometimes you are thinking to yourself, what am I doing? But friends, let me tell you, it's in those moments that you experience the power of Jesus working through you. We did. 
your limited, inadequate impatience and lack of compassion, it all becomes overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, and, and you, you, you experience the thrill, in a sense, of being used by Jesus. This isn't me telling everybody here to foster. This is me simply saying, if you want to experience the power of Jesus in your life, you need to sacrifice for others, pour yourself for others, out for others. And notice... When you do this, point four, you discover that Jesus' power does more than you could imagine. This boy, he takes a leap of faith. He says, take it, gives it all to Jesus, and what happens? By the end of the story, you have a crowd that is stuffed. They are, they overate, and there is food left over. You now have more food than when you started with. Because Jesus just kept multiplying the food. And the people are like, okay, it's enough. It's kind of like when, you're, when your mother-in-law just keeps putting more food in front of you and saying, come on, eat, eat. Oh, you're skinny as a rail. And you're like, I'm, I'm about to explode here. You cannot exhaust Jesus' provision, friends. You cannot exhaust Jesus' provision. You know, when we had this cockamamie idea that we wanted to maybe buy the church office last year because we thought, hey, maybe we can reduce some of our expenses. We've got to go on some kind of fundraising drive. How do we do that? Uh, within, you know, two months, we had $550,000 donated to Grace Valley Church from people outside our worshiping community. Not because, I promise you, not because I am a good fundraiser. Not because I'm so smart at all of this stuff, but because for Jesus, when he, is, when he has placed his seal of approval on a ministry, $500,000, half a million dollars, is peanuts. It is literally peanuts. We hold on to our resources all the time because we think we've got to be careful, man. We've got we to gotta watch our money. We've got to watch our stuff. We've got to watch our time. We've got to protect it. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I can tell you in that moment when, when, that, when those donations came in, it was immeasurably more than all I had imagined. I could not have imagined that people would give to our little community that they know very little about. They're not connected to us in any significant way. And yet, they just wanted to bless God's work in this town. And they put their money behind it. When Jesus is there, there is always more you can hope for. Look what he did in John chapter 2. He he changed this water into the best wine these people had ever had in their lives. And there was more than enough. And here he gave them the best meal that they'd ever had in their lives. And you know it's the best meal they never had in their lives because Jesus created out of nothing this bread and this fish. This is unfallen bread and fish. I stole that from John MacArthur. Last point. Jesus' power works his way. You know, in verse 4... It says the Jewish Passover festival was near. Passover was a national holiday to the Jews, still is for many of them. It, it, it kind of 
It's a little bit like Canada Day or Bastille Day. It's a, it's a celebration. It's a remembrance of the Exodus when God freed the people of Israel from, from slavery and made them a free people. And this crowd in particular might have been a, made up largely of a particular group of people in Jesus' day known as the Zealots. Now, the Zealots were a faction of the Jews, along with other factions. There were four major ones, and the Zealots were one of them, and they believed that this promised Messiah from the Old Testament uh, would be a military king. And what he would do is, is he'd come and he'd overthrow Rome and he would, he would uh, uh, set up a new Israel with a, a, his righteousness as, as he would be the new king and he would be righteous and good and, and Israel would return to kind of the glory days under King David. And they met out in the wilderness because they were kind of like a guerrilla group. That's what guerrilla groups do, eh? Is they, they hang out in the wilderness and, and they train there and that kind of stuff. And Jesus is out there and he ministers to this, this huge crowd and they see this miracle and they think, he's given us bread. And immediately their minds are going back to the Old Testament and they're thinking of Moses. In verse 14, it says this, the people saw the sign Jesus performed. They began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. They're making a connection to the Exodus and they're making a connection to how Moses, on behalf of the people, he cried out to God and said they need something to eat and God gave them manna through the ministry of Moses. Manna was this bread that they found every morning when they woke up and it fed them the entire time they were walking through the wilderness. And they're thinking, as they look at Jesus, they're thinking, this is the man we're looking for. This is the new Moses. And so they say in verse 15, it says in verse 15, I should say, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, they wanted to make him king. They said, this is the one we've all been waiting for. But that's not, you see, Jesus' jam. He did not come to give them a political kingdom. He says, the giving of the bread was meant to show them something. See, in, in the New Testament, every time Jesus does a miracle, it's described as a sign, meaning it's meant to point past itself. It's meant to teach them something. And what Jesus is showing them by giving them bread and, and, and sort of showing that he is greater than Moses, he's saying, look, your needs are greater than political. They are bigger than material. Later on in the book of, uh, or sorry, in the chapter, uh, in John 6, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, he's going to say to the crowds, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He's saying, your needs are actually eternal. You have a hunger that literal bread will never, ever satisfy. It would never fill you. And if you are not getting that emptiness filled by me, you will starve forever. That's what he's saying. All your revolutions, they're all ultimately going to fail unless you deal with that hunger first. You're hungering for me. Your spiritual emptiness that you feel in your stomach is something that I alone can satisfy. And that's why he says to them these famous words, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. You see, Jesus is showing them that he's the one who can totally satisfy them if they put their trust in him. They wanted 
Moses to liberate them from oppression. They wanted him to be the new Moses. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just a new Moses, I am the ultimate Moses because I come to lead you through the ultimate exodus. Not just to liberate you for a little while from a political oppression, but to free you forever and ever from sin, from judgment, from hell, from guilt by dying as your substitute. I am a king but I'm a king who serves his people by dying for them so that you can feed your soul on me. You know, at Grace Valley, we, we do communion every week. Many traditions do that. Not all traditions do that. We do it every week. And every week, we take this piece of bread that has been broken for us so that we can distribute it among us as brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ, and we can eat it, and it symbolizes the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the only way we can distribute it so that it can be fed to us is if we break it. Well, on the cross, Jesus was broken for us. If, if he had stayed whole, if he had not gone to the cross, we would have starved. But he was broken so that we could be made whole. He gave himself to us so that we can trust him when we give ourselves to him, that he will satisfy us, that he will watch over us, and that he will one day bring us into his perfect eternal kingdom where we will never ever hunger or thirst again. I look forward to next week. I look forward to being able to, again, eat and drink in remembrance of him together. Let's pray. Father, we do want to know your power. Jesus, we do want to know your power. We see it on display in this passage. And we ask that you would Enable us to give ourselves entirely to you in order to experience your power at work in us. We know we're weak, Father. We know that we cannot do it our own, on our own. We are utterly desperate. But our Jesus is utterly sufficient. And help us, Father, to, to, to let ourselves be used by you, pouring ourselves out for others and experiencing your power through us as you bless the world through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.